Everyone has a story. How they got here, where they met along the way, the choices they made, the dreams they are chasing. Welcome to Anthologies of Hope. Welcome back to Anthologies of Hope, and thank you all so very much for joining us each and every week. As always, I am your host, Rick Osowski, and I am not a mental health professional in any way, simply a mental health advocate with a passion for storytelling. The past two weeks have been more memorable than I could have imagined, with such great positive feedback from the last two episodes detailing mine and Amanda's journeys. Thank everyone who has reached out in any way, as every little bit of encouragement goes a very long way. And that's just not for us, but for every guest and listener of Anthologies of Hope. Picking up where we left off with our traditional episode format from last season, we are continuing our interviews with members of the Hartcamp family, and one who does not live under the same roof as myself. If you're not familiar with Hartcamp, we dive deep into the ins and outs of it in our first two episodes. But as a quick refresher, Hartcamp is the brainchild of Jamie Torkowski, and a two-day workshop focusing on authenticity, writing, bringing your heart to work, and mental health. For more info on Hartcamp, including upcoming dates like May 4th and 5th in Melbourne, Florida, you can check out hartcampwithjamie.com for details. I always thought it was weird when I would listen to my favorite podcasts and the host or guest would say they've been waiting to catch up with a friend, but then realized the only time they were going to actually get around to doing that was on that specific podcast episode. That's how I felt this week with our guest, Emily Allison. Emily joined me in Los Angeles for the third heart camp of 2018, and to say that it was just the right thing at just the right time for her would be an understatement. As you'll hear during her interview, she ended up making a change in the living situation and career path shortly after Heart Camp Weekend, so finally catching up with her and getting all the details about what life has been like since the first weekend of May, almost an entire year ago now, was amazing. You will also hear of the great work she is now doing in her new career path, how that contrasts with her Enneagram personality type, and some of the great self-care work, read that as boundaries, that she does to maintain herself and her strength. Finally, almost 20-something episodes in, we also end up creating a catchphrase for the podcast, which happened ever organically, and so typically me, with my brain moving faster than my mouth. I had a blast catching up with Emily, and hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. As you know, we are curating a pretty epic playlist as our Season 2 moves forward, filled with both contributions from myself and our guests. You can find it at anthologiesofhope.com playlist. You will still be able to find the Season 1 playlist under our user account on Spotify and anthologiesofhope.com slash playlist dash season dash one. Emily didn't need a loophole for the song question this week, although her answer to the other weekly question was well worth the one thing loophole. Make sure to check out her contribution to the playlist this week, The Stable Song by Gregory Allen Isakoff, and how some of the lyrics can be exactly what you need whenever you need them. Jumping back in line myself, I also contributed only one song to the playlist this week, but it's worth its weight in gold. In the Blood by John Mayer is one of a few songs that have stopped me in my tracks for the first time I ever heard it. Literally so in the grocery store, right in front of the dairy case. It's another one where the lyrics are so deep and so layered that you can't help but scream sing by the end of it all. Each week, we'd like to remind you that if you're in a time of crisis, we will be covering a range of potentially difficult topics. Please use this as a warning to seek help and come back to listen once you are in a more positive season. If you are in need of help, an abundance of international resources can be found on the Find Help pages from To Write Love in Our Arms and Hope for the Day. To write Love in Our Arms can be found at twloha.com slash find-help, and Hope for the Day can be found at hftd.org slash find-help. As always, you can find us at anthologiesofhope.com, on Facebook and Instagram as Anthologies of Hope, on Twitter as Anthologies Pod, or email us directly at anthologiesofhope, all one word, no punctuation, at gmail.com. Like, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. I won't hold this week's episode up any longer. Go to fun, have town with Emily Allison. Mm-hmm. 
my name's Emily Allison, and I'm from Gardnerville, Nevada, but I'm currently currently living in Portland, Oregon, working for a medical nonprofit um, that works with refugees and disaster relief. That sounds pretty interesting. I was excited today when I saw that through through scheduling, I've been trying to schedule a bunch of other episodes recently. So I knew we had a, a recording tonight. I just, it slipped my mind who exactly it was. And so when I saw that it was going to be you, we were going to of be able to talk for pretty much the first time since Heart Camp in April. I was I was kind of excited, so looking forward to, to this conversation because I, I knew you were doing some pretty cool stuff, and that is a pretty powerful a piece of work that you're doing there on a daily basis. So, what exactly do you do on a on a daily basis with that nonprofit? Then, I started as the receptionist and assistant for the finance and admin department, but I just am switching over now to being the assistant for the field operations assisting all of the like global programs that we have, which is very exciting. It's much more in line with what I love to do. So what type of global programs are there? Cause I, I imagine that there's a, especially, or I guess I should say, unfortunately now for a lot of that in the, the current state of things, there's, there's a lot of work going on there that, that needs help. So I'm sure that there's a, a lot that moving to the field operation side, you, you touch on and kind of get your hands into. Yeah. So our biggest office is, or our biggest like program is in Uganda dealing with refugees from South Sudan and from the Congo. We also have a fairly large program in Bangladesh and then some programs in Turkey and Lebanon for the Syrian refugees. So wow. those are the biggest, but we also do some other work in, where else do we work? Tanzania, Guatemala, Liberia. Yeah. So it's a, so a pretty it like, wor- worldwide, pretty expansive mission that's pretty uh, pretty much all over the place then. Yeah. Yeah. Wherever there are refugees or like in um, Liberia, we're, we're there because we helped respond when there was Ebola outbreak a few years ago. And so we've been there like helping stre- strengthen the health systems in wow. the countryside. Yeah, that, that's a, a pretty uh, impressive and I would say noble uh, mission would, would be the one where that would, that would come to mind there. So those are, those are always the type of, of missions that, and, and programs that definitely kind of warm my heart to, to see the, the effort going into that. How did you get into that, that line of work? How did you kind of fall in line with uh, the refugee assistance and, and some of that nonprofit itself? I'm new-ish to it. So I did some missions work in 2012 and 2013 and and then when I got back to the states I um, needed to finish school so I got just like a job at a construction company and did that for a while and then when I was done with that school um, I really just wanted to get back into global issues and working on that and this has been a really great way to do that and I'm still very new to it but it's been amazing what was it that you studied in school to kind of put you on that direction I studied psychology, which doesn't exactly match up, but it's been really <laughs> cool to see because we're health focused. Mm-hmm. And so they're realizing within probably the last couple of years, the need to add like the mental health aspect, especially when working with like refugees and how much like stuff that they go through. So that's been really cool to be able to kind of think that maybe I can use my degree in that sense. So, yeah, I imagine that, that that's a very large overlap in a lot of the work there and mm-hmm. the vast majority you could probably say of a, of a lot of the issues that you would need to to kind of deal with on a day-to-day basis end up having lasting mental health effects so yeah. knowing how to approach them for you know long-term 
mental health recovery, long-term mental health impacts really goes a long way as opposed to just kind of putting a Band-Aid on something and then kind of kicking it down the road to, to get to somewhere else. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So it's cool to, to hear that the entire like nonprofit industry, if you want to call it like an industry, is kind of shifting to really be paying attention to that as well. What all did you specialize in with psychology in school? Is there any specific type? I mean, what made you get into mental health area to begin with? Or what else did you kind of dive in there? My biggest like hands-on experience was at a treatment facility for people with eating disorders. So, and that was like a trauma-based facility. So there was a lot of other stuff that came along with those eating Mm -hmm. disorders, a lot of really, really awful hard things that people had been through and had developed a lot of coping mechanisms in order to survive some really terrible things. Um, And then once they were safe, you know, trying to work out having healthy coping mechanisms and not the unhealthy ones that we, I mean, I have all sorts of unhealthy coping mechanisms too, but um, so that's my biggest, that's what I focus on a lot was eating disorders and like what comes with those. But I also um, have done some stuff with specific to anxiety and depression, which is what I've always struggled with. So those are a little bit more close to home. That's a a little bit of a, a good segue there. I mean, that's one of the, the comments or, more of the common type of, of conversations that we end up having where they're the more diagnosed, I guess you could say the more easily diagnosed kind of pieces of our mental health yeah, and, and a lot of what we're dealing with as far as the, the depression and anxiety. So like, what's, what's some of your, your background there? Like how was that recent? I mean, was that something very early on? I go back and look, I probably, and I don't know if I can separate the two anxiety and depression of like when they started, but it's probably around like 11 or 12 that I would put that, like, I can't really remember, which kind of stinks to find out that that's average. Like I kind yeah. of wish that I was on the younger <laughs> end of that. Like I wish people were dealing with this at such a young age as I started. So yeah, I think probably around then, and I didn't have like any sort of like language for that or any sort of way of like realizing that that wasn't normal. I had panic attacks. I can't remember when those started probably around 13 or 14. Mm -hmm. And I think when I was 18 or so I was in college and that's when I think I realized that, and it wasn't even because I'd been taking a bunch of psychology classes and I don't know how I missed it at this point, but that I had realized that maybe some of my thinking just wasn't quite like, accurate I you, you know like the, I was thinking some things that probably weren't true mm-hmm. and then from there it probably took another year or so before I realized like oh these are the names of the things that I have so I mean from the time you were 10 or 11 until you were a year into college you were just kind of living with the symptoms the feelings and just the all of all of the kind of the mental health issues that that you just described there between anxiety, depression, and, and panic attacks. So in that time yeah. span, as far as seven to nine years, as far as on, on the, the outer end of that, like there, you weren't, did you end up seeking treatment at all? Or you just thought that was normal and that wasn't anything that you needed to, to, or either you couldn't find help for that's something that like, it wasn't something that could be helped. I didn't think, I didn't know it wasn't normal. And so I didn't think it was something that could be helped. And I didn't, I, once I like was able to put language to it and figure out that like, Oh, I don't have to have a panic attack. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have to have a panic attack every day. This is amazing. I worked with some really close friends and they helped for a while of like kind of 
figuring all of that out. And then um, I didn't actually end up starting therapy until I was 23 or 24. And was it, were you out of college by then or were you still in college then? So I took some time off. I did a year and a half of college and then took two and a half years off and then went back. So I was back in college at that point. At the time? Yeah. And what, so at that time, was that a, because this is an interesting conversation with most of the folks we've had here as far as timing of seeking therapy and, and counseling and, and help in that way. And their kind of location in life, as far as whether that's a real world, go to Google and look for this type of counseling or therapy, wherever you are, Mm -hmm. or being in a university setting and being able to find that through on-campus resources. So was that something where you were able to do that through college or was that something where you ended up having to kind of find that on your own or through insurance or something like that? Yeah, I was going to school online, so I didn't have okay. like this resources like that. So I ended up doing like the Google route and yeah, it was probably, it's such a daunting task to find a therapist. I feel like that's what hangs, that, that hung me up for mm-hmm. a long, probably uh, several months before, like when I knew I needed it and until I like actually made the call to find somebody. But I got very, very fortunate the first time out getting a really great therapist so you so, had a, you had a good experience the first shot as far as a good connection that way i did and are you still seeing that person now or no no well i don't live in the area, area. okay i stopped seeing i went there for about a year and a half and then finances made it so that i couldn't really go but i kind of got into a place where it was like okay and i could pretty stable uh, yeah i was stable and i was able to like handle all of my mess and then, so that was a pretty solid 18 months of, of seeing that. And then was that something where you would realize that you were suffering from depression and anxiety to begin with, to go there? Or did you have to go there for a little bit to actually then connect those dots and not just realize something was wrong? So I connected the dots at like 19 and then managed it myself, which in hindsight probably wasn't the best. (laughs) I I managed it. You do what you can till then and it was fine and then at around 24 it was just like something hit and it was infinitely worse than it had been and that's when i was like okay i can't do this by myself anymore you, like you need to figure that out need to get some help yeah was there anything as far as the kind of end result there what have you done since then to to manage some of that I, there have been through a number of conversations and even my own experiences where some folks go in and understand what they need from therapy and they end up getting practices there, be it, you know, mindfulness, meditation, just the practice of talking. Then sometimes it ends up being medication for chemical imbalances, et cetera, et cetera. So what was there, what did you end up using there that you were able to, in the meantime, be able to kind of manage those, those symptoms and and conditions? Yeah. A lot of practices that I picked up, I, very stubbornly did not want to get on medication, not because I don't believe in it. Cause I've totally told so many people that mm-hmm. like, if you need it, you should do it. Absolutely. And I have this weird hang up with like, even for myself, if I have like a headache, like I don't like taking medicine. So, and I probably would have gotten better way faster if I had done it, but I did this stubborn thing that I always do. And my therapist and I would always talk about like, I know I should do it, but I'm not going <laughs> that to. That ends up being a, another recurring theme as far as a, especially everyone who knows and is cognizant of mental health and a mental health advocate where it's more of a do as I say, not as I do type thing because they want to help everybody else and then put themselves last. So that's again, telling other people to get on medication while you kind of forgo that is 
very understandable, yet something that, again, hindsight would make that a different decision altogether. Yeah. So, so if I ever need it, then hopefully I would at that point be able to actually take the medication and not be as stubborn and weird about it. But so mostly practices, a lot of what we did was like parts therapy. Okay. So I've been able to incorporate that a lot into like figuring out, okay, why am I freaking out about this? Like what voice is loudest you said, right now? You said parts therapy? Yep. Therapy. So like different, you know, you've got like your, my anxiety is a part and like my depression is a part. And then there's a part of me that's like really stubborn. And there's a part of me that's really youthful and playful. And so you, you have like all of these different aspects okay. of your personality. And then, and this doesn't, this, it doesn't necessarily work for everyone to do parts, but it really helps me out. Cause I just have like all of the different, I overthink everything. Mm-hmm. So it was a really way to like kind of filter that and figure out like what's trying to get my attention so loud. Like what am I so worried about? Well, and then break that all out into, uh, I mean, almost essentially compartmentalizing everything and understanding how each of them affect each other. And that's just, yeah. that's a new one that I hadn't heard of and maybe by another name, I may be more familiar with it, but that seems mm-hmm. very interesting because to me, that seems like it would almost jive with some of how I deal with therapy and kind of talk that and kind of putting things in boxes and knowing how certain things are affecting certain parts of me. Yeah and things like that. So, uh, that would be something where I, that's one I'm, I'm definitely gonna look up, uh, after we're done recording here to, to kind of get a little bit more on, cause it seems like something that would be a, uh, a very valuable tool in, in just a toolbox to have some of those conversations and practical kind of deescalation situations when it comes to, to mental health situations and kind of helping people when, uh, they're in a little bit of a need. Yeah. Yeah. I, I recommend it. It works for me. So or it still works for me. I use it a lot. That's great. And so that's something where you're able to just walk through that and kind of do some of that on your own to kind of mm-hmm. talk yourself down when you're, when you're doing yeah. or having, having a in crisis moment. Yeah. It definitely took a while to make it, you know, the new, the new habit of like, Oh, why am I like, like to the pause instead mm-hmm. of just spiraling, like <laughs> to pause is a very new habit for me. But when I can do it early and I usually, Usually I'm catching myself early now, but the sooner I do it, the better. And it's been really good when I can catch it and be like, oh, that's why I'm anxious or scared or, you know, all of the things. Excellent. Yeah. On our episode with uh, Terry uh, from the second hard camp group, who is a camp director, she mentioned some of the techniques that they do to help campers in many different ways. But they, she says that there's a breathing technique that they can't really use to have campers de-escalate once they're in crisis, but they can mm-hmm. use that ahead of time before going into a situation where they know it may be difficult for them so that they yeah. can, you know, release that, that pressure before they ever even get close to that situation. So that, that seems like it would be something very similar there where you're able to mm-hmm. have that as a tool to, you know, preemptively act on something as opposed to just handle that symptom. Once it's already there, you're in, in the middle of something. Yeah, definitely. That's a, that's a great pool to have it in that. Whereas, so, again, just getting more familiar with it, understanding your body and understanding your mind and figuring out that, you know, something isn't right. So you need to kind of take a step back and take another look at the situation and not just, again, suffer because mm-hmm. you don't know any better is, is a good tool to have. So that, that that's a pretty, uh, pretty, I'm, I'm glad and grateful you, you have that tool <laughs> at your disposal there. Yeah. So, so that's good. Me too. Why, why don't we kind of pivot and, and make that little jump to 
hard camp and kind of yeah. some of the your your connection with hard camp jamie Troy loving her arms and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff so how long how did you end up hearing about hard camp have you been a, a follower of Troy loving her arms with just jamie's writing et cetera, et cetera. so how did you end up serendipitously ending up in la on that weekend yeah i have been following Troy love for since high school and i don't think i got on like right at the beginning i wasn't allowed to have my space okay so i wasn't there but pretty early on I knew about them and what they were doing. And even despite like not having the words to know myself that like I had all of these things, it was still something that I really, really loved being able to like speak worth into just people mm-hmm. and just knowing that everybody matters and their story matters. And I always have loved that message. And so I'd followed Jamie and I have, you know, his book and follow him on social media and so when he started posting about heart camp um the first one is in or the first two were in florida and i was living in california at the time a west coast to east coast is very very hard to do (laughs) so it wasn't something that i was like able to make but i knew that i really really wanted to try if he ever came to the west coast and then the next one was in la and i just said it really like frustrated spot and trying to get a job in nonprofit, the, the job that I'm at now. And like, I was like, I have to do something for me. And so that's what I did. And it was perfect. That ends up being another big thing is very similarly where the common theme is I need to do something for me because again, over and over again, a lot of the people that come to heart camp or, or that we've been talking to, especially are the type or personality type, which we'll circle back on in a little bit for the Enneagram, but end up wanting to do more for other people. So the Mm -hmm. time and time again, what we've heard both, you know, on podcast episodes and and then just in casual conversation is hard camp was the decision that they needed to do something for them. Yeah. And so whether it was, you know, in a period of transition, just the connectivity to mental health, and, you know, just being authentic and figuring out like how to bring your heart mm-hmm. to work or kind of the connection with expanding writing, all of those pieces end up being a confluence of this is what I needed for me, for everybody else who's generally in type of a care type industry, which, you know, whether yeah. it's other people being therapists or like you being in, in a nonprofit supporting a massive population, uh, folks that are like carry a camp director, et cetera, the, it ended up being something where that that's a very common theme for folks that t- that generally in their professional life are putting other people before them. So this was yeah. the the jump that they needed to do to, to kind of figure out what they wanted to do on their own in, in that journey as well. Yeah. And what a great place to do it. I loved heart camp. Go deeper. What, what were some of yeah. the things that, that you loved there about it? it? I mean, that's basically the, the next question I had anyway, which was, did you find what you were looking for? So I would say the answer is yes. So uh, then go ahead and uh, expand a little more on that one. Um, I think we kept all kind of saying this during it was like, we all didn't like, we all just instantly like felt comfortable. Like it was this moment where we all kind of spoke the same language and you didn't have to explain yourself or like you could explain, we had to like introduce situations, but we didn't have to like introduce who we were, where we were coming from before we said anything. It was more like, here's the facts you need to know. So my story makes sense, but you already know exactly like what I'm kind Mm -hmm. of trying to about in all of this which was such a cool thing to be in a room full of people like that so instantly and I also just really loved being able to like because I was trying to find a way to bring my heart to work and just to hear like the way other people had found it and the way other people were working on finding it was so 
so good for me to hear at a point where I was really discouraged and trying to find a way to do that for myself. And then, yeah, it was just like all of the right. I love to read. I love the work that Jamie's done. So it was just all of these wonderful things to be able to like put together a place to be really safe and honest and just learn. So with the the timing of looking for the nonprofit role you're in now, and hard camp as it was, how soon after hard camp were you, did you find that position? Were you able to make that jump and were there tools from hard camp or kind of any, any conversations, anything that, that happened over the course of that weekend that then made you like either double down or kind of figure out what you needed to do to, to get to where you're at now? It was about three months after hard camp that I got this job. And I think that the biggest thing that I got out of part camp for that specifically was just like kind of being renewed to be able to keep going. Cause I've been trying for over a year, I think at that point, like I've been really trying and it's hard to get a job out of the area when it's like, when you don't have a ton of experience and mm-hmm. it was just very, very frustrating, hard process. And heart camp was just like, no, I see how, you know, these people have that, ability to bring their heart to work. I see how these people are also searching for it. And I know that it's something worthwhile and I just have to keep trying and it'll come eventually. And then it did. That's great. And the timing there ends up being something where it it can, the, the waiting, the searching can, can be the most painful part. So having Mm -hmm. the, the fulfillment for both folks that have found that, and then folks who are going through the, you know, the same exact search at, at that moment for varying levels of, professional, personal, you know, extra professional type type settings to figure mm-hmm. out what their next step was, where they were going, what they wanted to do, even some of their reasoning for wanting to make that jump and, and everything. So uh, I'm sure, again, like you said, only needing the bare facts to have stories make sense, but then kind of everybody being on the same page as far as inclinations and intentions and the authenticity word again uh, and yep. having that that same level of authenticity to their story has has made kind of just that that short you know weekend a a very valuable experience yeah absolutely going off of uh the fact that i would say you did find what you were looking for at, at hard camp but then also i believe based on the table that you were at you were also at a table with someone who was wearing an enneagram t-shirt as well I think. Uh, so then uh, you also said in, in some of the, the planning here that you are familiar with the, the Enneagram as well. So what do you, do you know, or before we kind of let's bury the lead a little, but uh, how did you end up becoming familiar with the Enneagram? Was that before hard camp since hard camp or what's your experience with it? I had kind of heard of it before. And then everyone talked about it a lot at Enneagram or at heart camp. And then but I hadn't really looked into it until I moved to Portland. And then I went like a week straight with talking to like every day, somebody else was talking to me about <laughs> the Enneagram. And I was like, okay, I have to just look this up because apparently that's the thing you do here. Okay. Specifically. I'd heard of it before and I was like, okay, I just have to do it. So I'm new to it, but I, I do like it. I think it's a really helpful tool. And that's been my experience too, is it ends up being kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, for, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, where the more yeah. I ended up jumping into it, the more it ended up coming into my everyday life or just more conversations where people that I've talked to before that I've never had a conversation about it 
but it ended up popping into normal everyday conversations with people that I've been having conversations with for a long time. But now for whatever reason, you know, the more I dug into podcasts or read about it and things like that, then they were talking about it or it was coming in out of left field. So it was almost kind of like the, the somewhat justified urban myth of Facebook spying on you through your phone app. But this was just like that, the universe spying on me and just injecting more Enneagram stuff, stuff in, into my life. Yeah. So with that, what, uh, what did you end up finding your Enneagram type to be uh, so far? Five. Okay. So that is one that I'm not super familiar with offhand, but is that, I, I, is that one of the one that's more of an introvert type? I can't remember. Yeah. I, I think someone has told me that they've heard it's the most introverted type, which makes sense for me. And it's very like, you want to know everything and like research stuff. A handy dollar seventy eight used book that I got one day that was serendipitous, basically in front of my face at the used bookstore. <laughs> I, I have a couple other Enneagram books too, but they're digital, so they're not as easy to grab uh, or yeah. audible. So it's kind of hard to jump to a specific spot there. But this one ends up having it as, listed as the observer is, is number five. <laughs> so yeah, that's the one that I remember the most there. So yeah, the I put my energy into observing from a detached stance learning all there is to know about a subject, thinking and analyzing in advance, dampening and reducing feelings, self-containment, withdrawing, which is something we'll, we'll get back to in, in a little bit too, because you, uh, out of all the submissions so far, you, you've you submitted uh, one of my favorite words uh, of all for, for kind of all, all of the, any of the definitions that, that we've had here. So we'll, we'll get back to withdrawing. So that that's a, uh, a very much correlation there conserving, maintaining sufficient privacy boundaries and limits. So I, I would think based on everything else that, that kind of you mentioned there, that, that definitely aligns with uh, the five and the observer or uh, the uh, the introvert type. Yeah. Yeah. And then apparently, I don't know about the wings. I'm still learning about those, mm -hmm. but apparently a wing four, which is the like iconoclast. So like the, like people who challenge tradition and stuff, which I at first was like, that doesn't make any sense when I heard that, but I'm learning, I think that I challenge, but not necessarily like in a, which probably really does make me a wing four, but like not in a, you know, like protester kind of mm -hmm. way, but like I challenge some things like that, that it really is in me, but I wouldn't have probably noticed that otherwise. And if I hadn't read that and tried to figure out how that made sense. Yeah. So the, the way that I've, come to understand it with the four being the the romantic and just being the one as the this book defines it but the the four is also the one that is full of emotion full of feeling yeah. so we we've mentioned it a couple other times Jamie's book uh, if you feel too much ends mm -hmm. up being referred to as if you for too much for <laughs> for the enneagram stuff so so yeah. that ends up being the the case there so that's where i think the flip side is as far as just whether how you deal with that emotion from, from that point mm -hmm. of view, whereas you're, you're still standing back and you're still looking at it. But if you, you're kind of skewing towards the, the wing four, that ends up being a case where you're still, you're standing back, you're observing, and then you're feeling more and you're kind of taking that all in as opposed to skewing the other way, which uh, this book defines the six to be the loyal skeptic, which is what one of my buddies is for, another uh, podcast that, that I, I do just uh, casually. And that was one where it was, you know, spot on for, I, I would want to say the defiance of power just due to logic or due to 
like mm-hmm. reasoning. And so th- those are the ends up where one is you're kind of standing back and being standoffish because you're opposed, you're kind of like putting back force. And the other is kind of like you're just standing back, taking it all in and feeling all at the same time. So I think those yeah. are the kind of two ends of the spectrum for for the five, whether you're a wing four or a wing six there. Yeah. Super interesting stuff. I want to I wanna read more books about it because it's like the more I learn, the more helpful I think it is for myself and then for like other people it's just so good and as we mentioned multiple times uh with a couple of our episodes it ends up being a case where it's not just a personality test where but it ends up being like a personality tool because with other folks (laughs) or which other other tests like the myers-briggs is okay but there's also like there's more combinations there and it's a little bit difficult to read like this like you get like one number as opposed Mm -hmm. to myers-briggs you you have, you know, some DNA code there that is difficult to remember. And then for me, it changes every time. So the only ones that I remember are when they're mapped to, you know, pop culture characters. So I remember I was either Yoda or Leia for one of them, but uh, I don't remember <laughs> what the actual uh, equation or the, what the actual the letters, letters came out to be. And then just a handful of other ones, but this one where it ends up being, it's, it's giving you a number so you can, you know, understand it, you can grok it, you can hold on to that. And then you can figure out what to do when you're feeling stressed, what to do when you're feeling confident, how you react in certain situations, mm-hmm. how you interact with other people that are uh, different numbers or similar numbers and things like that. Because for, I would say probably a good six weeks after our session, Bridie and I were kind of talking every day because both of us are twos and uh, we were constantly sending stuff back and forth to each other about new podcasts, new content. She was sending me blog posts and just all the stuff where we were just kind of like consuming as much two stuff as possible because it mm-hmm. was the two is the giver. So it's defined as roughly like I'm not okay unless you're okay. So there was just so much stuff where we were in the same boat and kind of reacting this to the same situations and understanding how we would react to certain things. And so it was really eye opening. And like you said, the, the more you dig into it, the more you're able to figure out why you react to certain situations, how you're able to jump into certain situations and how to avoid certain situations that may have been negatively affecting you in the past. So they end up being a robust toolkit in your you know, mental and emotional health than what you realize going into to some of the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would uh, suggest checking out the, the sacred Enneagram is one book that's kind of big with the, the rest of the heart camp folks uh, and some of the other kind of folks that we talk to as well as the typology podcast is, is one of your, if you are a podcast listener, that's one that I mm-hmm. I've been syncing up on. And uh, Ian Morgan Cron has, has a, a book. The guy who puts that out has a book for, on the Enneagram as well. So that's a, a good one to, to jump into that has a lot of different variations, has, has a lot of, they kind of span the entire spectrum of, of that and kind of multiple people of ones, ones through nines. And they, they hit the, the gamut there. And there's a lot of interesting stories there. And then you end up seeing like, Oh yeah, this is why when I was, you know, 12 doing this in this exact instance, that's, that's why I reacted that way. So there, there's a lot of like picking my brain of past me to figure out how I reacted. And that's that, that both in the, the mental health space to know how I'm going to react in the future, but also, you know, figuring out why I reacted there in, in the past is always a, a good thing. So that's a, a good tool to have. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'll have to check that out. The segue there being the withdrawing and the the favorite word so far for like all of the descriptions of self-care that, that we've had so far and self-care and 
in the the workshop that I mentioned uh, previously, they the metaphor that they use is kind of a, a pre, or a soda bottle that when you shake it up, the obviously the carbonation builds up pressure and stuff. And so <laughs> instead of opening it all at once and it exploding, you have to open it up slowly and let out some of that pressure. Blah blah blah. Like that is you know self care, constantly letting out that pressure, either to have yeah. it be completely flat or just so that you're you're not bubbling over. Whereas in as we've, we've mentioned here, like self-care has, has many different forms, many different functions. And uh, as Britt said in, in one of our early episodes, if that means, you know, a glass of wine in a bubble bath, go to fun, have town uh, or go to town, have fun. I, I'm not even, <laughs> I haven't. Yeah, yeah. Go to fun, have town. That That's a, a, a new, a new uh, slogan there. But yeah, if that's what it means, then that's fine. But then there's obviously more practical things and, and less pop culture type ones. But one of the one of the ones you mentioned so far was hermiting, uh, and that was that was my favorite term. Like I was just like scrolling and just just doing some prep work and, and figuring that out. So, what would you define hermiting to be? Like, what what do you love so much about hermiting? What what's your hermiting practice? Well, I'm definitely like a hundred percent an introvert. So I and I love being around people. So like if you do like the love languages thing, like my number one is quality time. So it's like a really weird balance that I have to strike. Mm -hmm. But basically like when I'm done and I had a really great community that totally understood this. Um, otherwise it probably wouldn't have worked, but that my last place that I lived was like the social hub for our friend group, which was great until I was done. Yeah. And then I would just like disappear say nothing to anyone, go in my room, turn everything off and just like fall asleep. And that was, or read a book or watch TV. And I would put in headphones and I would just pretend that there wasn't a bunch of people in my house and they would pretend that I wasn't ignoring all of them. And I would just be by myself. And I think after the first couple of times of doing that, they realized that it wasn't like personal. Like I didn't want them to leave. I wanted them to all have fun, but I did not want to hang out anymore. And so I am very much like, and it doesn't have to be anything specific, but it usually just means that I'm going to go to sleep. I'm mm -hmm. going to just go get and go to sleep and it sounds great but I also try and make sure that I have time to I love to read so I try and make sure I have time to do that during the week and yeah I just like need to be by myself for a while the the couple of things that come to mind there again is just you know simply recharging where again like you yeah. said it be especially being in a social hub and having that where the no matter what you're doing it can just become daunting it can become like if you while you're interacting it can just become overwhelming so to just be able to withdraw and just be honest and say like no like it's nothing against you guys this is just you know mm -hmm. me my energy level where we've got to go what we've got to do yeah and so the the two metaphors that come to mind is either turning into a pumpkin so going full mm -hmm. cinderella or uh if have you seen uh big hero six the disney yeah. movie so basically baymax going to recharge and, and just, you know, uh, collapsing into a suitcase and, and recharging there. So those are as, when you said, you know, just, you know, retreating to your room, turning off the lights and, you know, just passing out pretty quickly. That's uh, exactly what, what came to mind there. But knowing that's what you connect with and, you know, what makes you whole and kind of recharging and then, you know, resetting all of all of the, the levels that you have for your pressures and stressors and things like that, that's, you know, more power to you to be able to do that. So is that something mm -hmm. you're able to do now, uh, being in Portland now? Or is that something that's not as necessary, depending on your current living situation? I think it's not, I think I have more just downtime in general, since I've moved here, because I'm still like getting established. And I'm not, I don't have as many time commitments as I did in California. So it's like, I don't have the need to be so purposeful about it mm -hmm. right now. 
I still have been very clear with like my new roommates and with people that like, I might, you know, if we have people over, I might disappear. If like, like I need to be alone a lot of the time. And my current job is very like social. I deal with 250 volunteers who come through a week and I interact with a lot of them at the front desk, do all sorts of stuff. So it's very, very social and it's great. And I love it. And I absolutely love getting to know everyone. But I think it's taken, it took like three months of doing that before I wasn't just completely exhausted getting home from work after talking to everyone. And that's just me and being able to figure that out. But yeah, so I think in some ways I haven't had to do a ton of that yet, but in some ways I have. So it's just been like a weird thing of having more time, but being more tired. I don't know. No, that completely makes sense. But it's also the mindset where, during your nine to five, like that's what you're doing. That's the professional you. That's like what you're doing going out there. And so like, it's not the same, like, you know, I'm going to say, it's not like you're free spirit going and doing that, like on your own accord. Yeah. So like when you're on your own time, then you're like, no, like peace out. I need to go recharge. Like I'm not getting paid yeah. to do this. So nothing against you, <laughs> but this is for me. This is my time. This is how I pay myself. So that, that completely makes sense. Cause I'm, I'm very similar in that notion where I've been to a number of, conferences for work over the course of you know the past 12 13 years and there's a point where it's like during the day yeah like we'll talk do whatever talk in the hallway walk and talk do all this stuff but then like once it's getting to like six seven o'clock at night and conference is over i'm grabbing dinner and going back it's like i just want to go back zone out pass out and then do my own hermit thing in a hotel room usually with a very horrible view so it's not like i'm missing out on anything <laughs> but yeah so I, I completely understand that but also the, one of the key points that, that you made there that I, I want to, you know, make sure it doesn't get glossed over is letting people know that's what your needs are, because that's a lot of time where even going back to kind of where we kicked this off with a lot of your mental health journey, you didn't know what you were feeling wasn't normal as far as yeah. depression, anxiety, and kind of what you were dealing with for those, those number of years before you, you were able to get some help for it, but understanding that's just a part of your personality for what you need to be a hermit and to be able to recharge and and kind of embrace that the ability to recharge in those practices is not something again to hide be ashamed of etc etc but like being honest being open with people and understanding like this is how we can interact this is what i need for my mental health goes a long way because then you're not really worried about you know jumping in jumping out of a friendship relationships social interactions where uh, again like you said if you're handling up to 250 volunteers that's a lot of social interaction that on your once you come come home you may just want to completely veg out and you know your brain is is shut off and just kind of constantly just like staring at the ceiling and not wanting to do anything so yeah. you know having people to understand that that's just your personality that's how you recharge where you know given tonight i you may not see me but come friday saturday on the weekend when we're doing something together with people that's where my energy is going to be at that time, but I need to, you know, work towards that as opposed to always yeah. being around everyone, always being there and kind of suppressing your own needs for the group, for the group, which as I'm saying this, this is a do as I say, not as I do type thing, because for me, that ends up being the problem too, being a two and being the giver and always putting everything else before everyone. So as we're also, my wife and I are currently planning a trip, kind of seeing and me thinking, oh, what is everybody else going to do on this trip while we're doing X, Y, and Z? So that's also something to, to that I'm 
kind of putting in my own memory bank there to to make sure that we're voicing uh, our own needs individually as well as a group and and being in that space where it shouldn't feel like there's a high barrier or there's that much of a kind of a gatekeeping to say these are my needs and this is what what uh I need to do for me so that's a a great mindset that you've come to work to and and be able to be a part of so I, I'm grateful you are able to voice those, uh, those needs and, and be able to do that for your, your mental health. Me too. I think I got spoiled in California cause the group friend group was like, they saw me through like the really bad time and then okay. needing to go playing and like that whole process. And I think that at that point, like I would get home from work and just like literally not be capable of like even faking it mm-hmm. kind of thing. So they saw how important being able to hermit was for like, like there was no hiding how hard of a time I was having. And so I think the fact that they saw that really helped set that up for when I was better, but I still needed to be able to like be by myself and recharge in, in order to like maintain being healthier. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved, it's like, I'm not going to lose that ability. So even though none of you know me and it's fine like I, this is a newish group of people. Like I'm still going to have these same boundaries because I, I have to. No. And uh, again, you just mentioned the B word there for boundaries. So that's a, a good thing yeah. for uh, <laughs> sustaining and growth and, and a lot of the mental health and, and counseling space there. So knowing, knowing your boundaries and sticking to them yeah. goes a, goes a long way and being able to, to work with that. So that's, that's good to hear. That's a, a good pivot point to then kind of the, the next topic that we, we touch on for, both the what you said you had in California and what you currently have mm-hmm. where, where you're at now, but what does community mean to you? Because it seems like you ended up having a a couple of different communities that you were able to grow through and grow into, and then also become present in and kind of put yourself into with a set with you know a certain set of strengths and and goals and res- and responsibilities. So what like what do you what does community mean to you? And then we'll we'll jump into some other stuff. Yeah. Community is definitely, I think, vital. I don't know. It's being able to like choose to be around each other. And even when you disagree about almost everything in some cases, like being able to choose and be like, no, but I choose that, like, I trust you and choose that, like, no matter what else is happening, like, this is a priority. And Sometimes, you know, somebody is going to give a little bit more than I am, or I'm going to give a little bit more than somebody else, but that like, it's a family. And I think that a lot through like my journey and my process has taught me that I don't have a lot of energy for like not being very authentic. Mm -hmm. It takes so much energy for me to be like interacting. um, Anyway. Sounds bad, but yeah. No, I completely get you. Like you don't have anything to put above and beyond what you're doing just to be there in the first place. So to be inauthentic and have and waste that much more energy on top of it is just doesn't make sense. So I completely get where you're coming from. Absolutely. So I, I, I have to be able to be who I really am and I have to be able to say, I mean, obviously I'm not like, I'm not just doing whatever I want and, but, but I have to be able to be authentic because I, I just don't have the energy anymore to, to not be. And I don't know how I used to be like, I don't understand where that energy came from, but I'm very glad that I'm not able to do that anymore. But it's also the other piece that you mentioned. That's interesting that I'm not 
super surprised, but I'm kind of impressed with a common theme through a lot of the uh, the definitions of community where there always is an angle there where not everyone has to get along. It's not magical Christmas land type thing, but there is there's it's a place where everyone, as as you defined it in in some of our, our prep material, a space you can be yourself and allow others the same privilege. But as you mentioned there, there's there's a there's room for discussion, there's room for dissent, there's room for disagreement. While mm-hmm. because then that's the only way you're gonna grow as well, because um, otherwise it's just an echo chamber and that doesn't really help. But it, it's interesting to hear as far as the definitions of community kind of echoing family, echoing a place where not everyone has to get along, but it is a place where everybody can still come together is is comforting too, because again, that's what allows for growth and kind of the different points of view, because if you're all the same and you're always agreeing, then that really doesn't do much for the majority of people. So, Yeah. One of my best friends, and I always say this to her, like, I don't understand how she tricked me into being her friend because we are so <laughs> different. And like people who are similar to her, I'm always like, oh, I don't like that person. And she's like, well, they're just like me. So that doesn't make any sense. You should love them. And it's like, but I cherish that relationship so much because she is so different from me. And I learned so much mm-hmm. that, but then I have to remind myself with other people who are like, her, like, oh, well, no, I love her. So I should probably like get to know them. They're probably cool too. But it's, it's interesting to see how like the people who you might not necessarily think would be so important, like really do make such a difference, especially in being able to. And I think that's part of the authenticity thing is like, I want to, if I'm being authentic, then I'm also probably recognizing because I'm showing you my flaws. So I'm recognizing that they're there and that there's room for growth. Absolutely. And so that opens it up to like, well, then what can I learn from you? And what's, what can we learn from each other? Because I obviously have things that are wrong with me and you have things that are wrong with you and how do we figure this out? Yeah. I think you touched on a really good point there as far as the, in, in the, the context of community and authenticity, but the, the notion of kind of like authentic dissent where that ends mm-hmm. up coming and that that's where you're coming full circle and you're raising the question by shining the light on somebody else or something else in the community, but it's more because you want to find what that is in you. And so that, that ends up yeah. being a, another tool that, can go to my toolbox where I'm coming away with plenty of tools here. So thank you for, for this discussion. Yeah. Absolutely. But that ends up being one where it is rather interesting because like, like you just said of, you know, other people that you may not end up coming into contact with naturally, or you end up pigeonhole mentally, but being able to then now be in a shared space and then understand the differences and then understand, you know, what your self perceived flaws are, and you bring them to the community and then work through them and, and kind of grow from mm-hmm. that uh, is, is very powerful. All right. So we'll, we'll start to wrap up then. Um, and if there's one thing that you could have somebody take away from your story, be it, you know, early on middle parts, later parts, where you are right now, what would that, that one thing be? I think that whenever I share this kind of thing, I always do it because I wish that somebody else had said something like if I wish I had heard something like this when I was younger, that I would have known sooner that I didn't have to like live through all of those things alone, like without help, without knowing that that wasn't how it had to be and that it can get better. It gets so much better and being able to figure it out and 
get the help that you need, it's so worth it. That's probably, I think that was like three things, but I don't think I ended a sentence. So it was one thing. <laughs> That's a good, uh, a good, I guess you could say loophole there. Then that's uh, yeah. not a problem. And we're not doing transcripts, so I don't have to worry about punctuation yet. So that that uh, makes it makes it worthwhile. But again, and and just the the fact that that is the sentiment that comes to mind for you when you're talking about this and what you want somebody to take away from your story, the fact that you just wish someone else had talked about it at a younger age that made that. Mm -hmm you know, audible had spoke truth to the struggle to just the, the reality of the situation so that you wouldn't have to, you know, deal with that in a number of ways that was over the course of, you know, those seven, eight years. And then once you were going back and, and finally got to, to see a counselor again, just telling your story, seeing people at every different point in, in their journey ends up helping and shining a light back on that. And it really, empowers everyone going through it because as one of the episodes that we just recently released it's like no matter how small your story is tell it anyway be proud of it because there's somebody else that's listening out there that may be suffering in silence or just may be existing in silence and hearing that can be that spark for them and kind of take them in a whole new direction so just always you know thank you for coming here to share your story because that's exactly what we want to do to be able to help others hear that. And this is, has been a, a great microcosm there to, to kind of bring that full circle. Yeah. So the, the big question that, that we close with and we'll, uh, we'll let you think on it a little bit, but what is one song that you'd want to, to share about your story? I think the first one that comes to mind is the stable song by uh, Gregory Allen Isakoff. And I always, it's kind of like not a sad song, but like not a happy song. I don't, there's a line in it that said, that says, oh shoot, now I can't think of it. But that he threw a stone at the stars with the whole sky fell. And I, the first time I heard that, like that was such a good like way of encapsulating like, I don't, the way that all of, like in the midst of mental health stuff, like the, the way that it feels. Mm -hmm. And it goes on to like, it's just such a real way of looking at like, sometimes things are good and sometimes things are really bad. And sometimes you throw a stone at the stars and everything just falls right down on top of you. And I don't know. I think it, I don't know what it is, but like sad stuff helps make me less sad mm -hmm. sometimes. I don't know what it is, but that one is one of my go-to songs has been for years. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't even take that. I, I haven't heard the song, obviously. The just the either the the song itself or the artist doesn't ring a bell. But so there may be more context once once I listen to it. But even yeah. then, just the metaphor as far as you know, throwing a stone at the stars and the whole sky fell. To me, listening to your story, it's the flip side. That's the beauty of it because then you grasping for air grasping for anything there and you you know throwing a, a stone at the stars and then the whole sky falls and then now you can see everything around you and so mm -hmm. that it's like just that one little piece as far as the a crack in the armor and then you're able to find the rest of the way through so i would take that as a completely different angle there but that's just because i'm a music nerd and a lyric nerd and i love taking <laughs> subsections of songs and and yeah. figuring out everything that they could possibly mean so 
but that that's definitely one I'll, I'll check out shortly after uh, we're we're done here and add that to the the tracking list. Yeah, I like your interpretation of that too. I, I mean, I I think it could be both. Like sometimes it's the sky falls and it's bad, and sometimes the sky falls and you can see better. That's a really cool way of looking at it. Thank you so very much for joining us this week. We hope you had as good a time listening as we had recording the interview. Don't forget to check out anthologiesofhope.com backslash playlist for all the awesome songs that will get added each week. You can find us on social media at Anthologies of Hope on Facebook and Instagram and Anthologies Pod on Twitter. It would be great if you could subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google and leave us a review. As always, remember, everyone has a story. And it's about time we start listening.